All right. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 2. If you are in third grade and below and you'd like to head to Children's Church, now is your time to do that. But if you want to stay in here and hang out with us, you are more than welcome to do that. For the rest of us, we'll be in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Luke chapter 2. So we've been in a series called A Strange Christmas, uh, in which we are looking at the Christmas story of, of the God who came for us, Jesus, who was born as a baby. And so we're seeing the, the different people who've learned about Him coming. We saw Mary. Last week we saw Joseph. And, uh, and so now we're going to see His actual birth. And, uh, and then some, uh, an announcement that came to some shepherds in a field. And, uh, and so I'm really excited about this one today. Uh, and so this one's called A Strange Announcement. And uh, because really, if you think about the Christmas story, like we're so used to it, it's so common. But it is really strange. The whole thing is a strange event. Uh, but, uh, but also, side note, I, before we get into it, we're going to talk about uh, the census that's happening here. But McGuff's class, your, your Christmas sweaters are on point. Lucas's is incredibly distracting, but it's amazing. Um, anyways, so uh, just, so you, just so you can get it out of the way, you can look at Lucas right now. It's, it's totally awesome. His sweater's amazing. Okay, now back up here, back up here. I just wanted to get that out of the way, because if you notice it out of the side, you're, you're, you'll be distracted, because you'll be staring the whole time. I just wanted it out of the way. Okay, now... Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. There is a census happening, and there's been a sense, like really the census here has been in the news pretty often because of the citizenship question. So like are they going to include citizenship or not on the, on the census that they send out in 2020? And they're real, the census is really important because they need accurate numbers to determine representation uh, in Congress, but also how much federal dollars come into a certain district. And that's, those, those are divvied out by the amount of people in that district. And so, and so the census stuff has been really important. Well, back in the day, 2,000 years ago, there was another census that was taking place. But instead of filling it out online or, or getting the thing in the mail that you fill out in the boxes and then you mail it back to say, yes, I have four kids or whatever the thing is, now for them, they had to travel back to their ancestral hometown. So where your ancestors were from, you had to go back to that city to be counted among those people. And, uh, and so that is what's happening here. So this is, it's possible that this was uh, Roman uh, wide towards the entire, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Territory, Roman kingdom, Roman something, the empire, that's the word I'm looking for. It could have been the whole empire wide or it could have been just Judea that he is doing this in. It doesn't matter. And, uh, and so, but either way, for Mary and Joseph, they've got to travel to Bethlehem from Nazareth, which is where they're at now. If you remember from last week, they're engaged. They're not fully married yet. Uh, but it was, a, it was as, like, their, their commitment was as strong as a marriage, where you had to get a divorce if you wanted to separate. So, they are heading out. Okay, so let's read verse 1 through 3, and we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. That's their census. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Let's pray. So, Father, come before you. We thank you for your word. 
And I pray that you would use it to speak to us today, God, that we would learn the humility of Jesus and what you want to do in, our, in the humble hearts. Like, God, I pray that you would, you would work that into us this week to where we walk out of here being people who are more faithfully obedient to you. And uh, so speak to us. Give us eyes and ears to hear what you want to say to us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the census is happening. They're heading back to Bethlehem. Side note, Mary is super pregnant, okay? Super pregnant. And she's got to make the 90, 70 to 90 mile journey, depending on which route you take. If you want the shorter route, you got to go through Samaria, which is with the, with the heathens, okay? If you want to take the longer route and avoid Samaria, it's about 90 miles. And so you've got to make that journey. But remember also, this is 2,000 years ago. There's no Honda Civic to pop in. And so you got to walk. Unless you're rich, then you get a donkey or a horse. But as we're going to see from verse 24, Mary and Joseph aren't rich. So Mary and Joseph have to walk from here to Waco. That's what they're doing. And so it takes, it'll take about three days if you're really booking it. Uh, you can do it in about three days, or you can take longer if you're pregnant. And so we don't know how long uh, it took them to take, but that's what they're doing. And so verse 4, so Joseph went up to the town, uh, from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Again, that's like from here to Waco. Uh, because he was of the house and of the family line of David. Now that is really important in biblical theology. What that's telling us is that Jesus is born into the line of David. That's significant because, he, as we saw the past two weeks, he is the king who's coming, and God is revealing his kingdom. God's bringing about his kingdom in the world, and he's going to hold fast to the covenant he made with David to put his son on the throne forever from 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's what he's doing here. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning, but that's what's happening. Why David is mentioned over and over and over again is because he's saying David is here. The king is back. The king is returning but I want to focus on the practical aspect for Mary and Joseph, because that's more interesting for me this morning right now. And so they went back to be married, to registered along with Mary, verse 5, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. So she's late term, okay? Nowadays, if you're pregnant, they, you have travel restrictions at about six months because your doctors don't want you to go somewhere else and go into labor and then you have to find someone, some hospital and somewhere else uh, to deliver the baby. And also, if you have complications, you need to be close to the hospital and to your doctor who knows what's happening. And so, so you have travel restrictions at about six months, and uh, then you can't fly uh, beyond much beyond that. They won't allow you on the airplane uh, because, you know, pilots don't want to deliver babies. And plus, that's, you're packed with a bunch of people, and you just don't want that. That's not a, that's not, it's not a thing you want and you know, with a hundred people just sitting there staring at you. And, uh, and so, uh, so that's what's happening. As she is on this journey, in verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So she's on this journey. She's not in her house. She's not in her hometown. She's now in Bethlehem. And the time has come for her to give birth. Likely, this was not like they got there that day and just thankfully it was like, oh, no, it's here. They were probably there for, for several weeks, if not months. It's, it's very likely they were planning on relocating to Bethlehem. Uh, but then later events happened with King Herod, and so they're going to have to escape and move back to Nazareth. But it's likely they were going to move here. And so they've been here for several days or several weeks, uh, and, and they're just sticking around, just waiting on this to happen because you definitely don't want to go into labor on your journey back uh, back home 
And, uh, and so she, then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there were no, where there was no guest room available for them. So we've all heard the Christmas story in the sense that Jesus and Mary come riding into Bethlehem on the donkey, which they didn't have, and they show up, and there's no room at the Holiday Inn or the La Quinta. And so they're sitting at La Quinta, and the guy's like, we don't have any vacancy. Look at the sign. And so they're like, go out there to the barn. And so then they kind of like, he walks his pregnant wife out to the barn, and then she like gives birth like among the cows and all that kind of stuff. That's probably not what happened, okay? Take the blow that up for you. What houses looked like back then, they were two-story. So you had a two-story house, and they were, if, you look at, if you're looking at like a single-wide trailer, it was half of that in the width, okay? And so half of that in width, and it's two stories. And you had a little courtyard on the first, on the first floor, and then you had like a storage room and another room and a kitchen on the first floor. Then you had a ladder going up, and on the second floor you had a room, and then you had a guest room where most people build guest rooms because hospitality was really, really important back then. And so, and so treating guests, and including people that you didn't know but came into town and needed a place to stay, was very important culturally for Jews. And so a lot of people had guest rooms for that purpose, to be hospitable. Now, with a lot of people traveling because of the census, there would be a lot of guest rooms taken up. A lot of family members coming to stay with family members because not everyone lives in Bethlehem. So you have to travel back home and stay with your great aunt or whatever it is. Well, if you get to the house, there's probably already a family there. And so the guest room upstairs was already taken, or there's another family. So you can't, like, go to the family you've already taken in and say, hey, listen, you guys got to get out. So what's probably going on here is they show up at the house. The guest room is taken upstairs. And so what they do is they put Mary and Joseph downstairs where the animals would be kept, why would you keep animals in your house, like cattle or goats or chickens, all that kind of stuff? There's a couple reasons. One is because you didn't have a lot of land. And if you wanted these animals, you had to keep them with you inside so they wouldn't be stolen. But then also during the winter, these animals' body heat would help heat your house. And so you'd put them down in the bottom, and they would kind of create a little bit of a heat uh, for, to help warm things up, maybe a couple degrees, not a lot, but it's going to do something. And so now they've put Mary downstairs in order to, to, to give her a spot to be, but also if you're downstairs among the animals, like down where they would be, you're also going to have a little bit of privacy as opposed to like up with everyone else upstairs. And so that's where Mary's at. Now in there... You've got, you've got your couple rooms. In between those rooms, they would have a manger or a feeding trough, which is where they would feed, the, feed their, their animals. So Mary's in there. She has just had a baby and where the animals would be. And, uh, and so now she is incredibly tired. She is exhausted. The journey's long, been here for several weeks, just had a baby. And if any of you have had a baby, I haven't, but it looks exhausting, Okay. It's tiring. At the end of it, you're just like, I'm wiped out. I just want to sleep. I want to rest. But you only hold your baby for a while, and then afterwards, you're like, he's cried so much. Just someone take him. Let me sleep. And that's what's happening here. She's exhausted. 
And so she takes her baby and she lays him in a makeshift crib, which is a feeding trough, a manger. And she had to have been incredibly exhausted at this point. You want to know why or how we know this? Because this is her first baby. Not baby number two or baby number three. And she took baby number one and put him in a feeding trough. You don't do that to your first kid. You do that to your third and fourth kid. And so that's what she's doing. She is tired. She's wiped out. She just, and so she takes her baby and lays him in a feeding trough. I want you to catch this. The realness of what's happening here. Because there's a lesson in this for you and for me. Because the God of the universe, the one through whom everything was created, who was enthroned in splendor in heaven, has all of a sudden come and humbled himself to be born as a baby, to be entrusted to a teenage mom, and to be laid in a feeding trough. That's what the God of the universe did for you. That's what he's doing here. He's demonstrating his humility here. And I want you to see this. Let's skip down to verse 21. Because they go through these, these rituals. He, he's born into everyday life. Everyday struggles, everyday like money issues, everyday rituals. And so verse 21, and when the eight days were completed for his circumcision, his name was, his name, he was named Jesus. So he was born and he went to go be circumcised. And then the, uh, the, he was given the name that the angel said he was going to be named before he was conceived. Here's the second thing he does. Verse 22, and when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. This is ritual number two. First one was circumcision. The second one is during the Exodus when God is bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. He said, every firstborn son is mine. He's going to work for me. He belongs to me. And if you want him back, you have to buy him. That's called redeeming the firstborn son. And so you go to the temple, and you offer a sacrifice, and you redeem your firstborn son, and he comes home with you. That was, there, that was, that was, that was number two, ritual number two, that Jesus' family did, like following just common Jewish traditions of his day. And here's number three, purification after childbirth. Look at verse 24. And to off, they went to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice according to what was stated in the law of the Lord. This is Leviticus chapter 12, verse 18. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Here's what's happening there. In the law, if uh, you came in contact with something that had to do with death, for example, blood outside of a body, you became unclean, and you had to go through a process of becoming ritually clean again before you could approach and, and before you could go back to the temple or approach other people. You were unclean. And so after childbirth, if you had a son, you were, the woman was unclean for 40 days. If you had a girl, you were unclean for 80 days. I don't know why the difference is there, but that's the case. And so after 40 days, Mary has gone through this ritual clean, cleanliness ritual thing. She's waited her 40 days, and now she's coming back to the temple to offer a sacrifice to make her clean again. But there's something significant in this, in this verse that I want you to see. What did she offer as a sacrifice? A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons? 
This is from Leviticus chapter 12, and this was the sacrifice that you could offer if you couldn't afford cattle. If you couldn't afford the real thing, God said, if you can't do that, here, just you can get two birds and offer those instead. What this is showing us is that Jesus was born into a family that couldn't afford the name brand sacrifice. So his humility and that he was born as a baby, he was enthroned in heaven, born as a baby to a teenage mom, laid into a feeding trough as his crib to a family that couldn't afford the name brand sacrifice. That is the God who came for you. He did that for you. And I want you, I'm, I'm trying to get you to see his humility here because that is a God worth following. That is a God worth devoting your life to, one who will humble himself to the point of this for you. And also that is what we're going to see here. We're going to look at Philippians here in just a little bit. And that like he also, he did that for you, but then also he provides the example for you and me. Because all of us, we love like, we love like, being awesome. We want to be Instagram, social media influencers. We want people to know about us. Like we want, like we want to have the CEO job and we want to have all like the money and we want to have, like we want to be famous and like we, whatever the thing is. Like when you, when you're a little kid, you dream of like being a hero. You dream of like being a fireman and like going and like saving the people and throwing them over your shoulder. And like, you know, you want to be that guy. Like you want to be exalted and you want people to celebrate you. That's what's natural in us. But then you see the God who deserves all of that and then came here and said, no, why don't you just lay me in a dirty trough instead? That is amazing to me. But there's a shift in verse 8. Go back to verse 8. Because what we're going to see here is that God's mantra is on display. So in, in Luke chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus is teaching a lesson to, his, to, his, uh, to, to people. And he says this, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. If you want to be the one who is lifted up, if you want to be the one exalted, God's going to humble you. But to the one who humbles himself, he will be exalted. God lifts up the humble. God exalts the humble because that's the thing that he prizes are people who think about others more than they think about themselves. What is humility? There's two, two aspects to it. One is admitting, admitting that you need God. Admitting that you need him. Admitting you need Jesus. And the second thing is this, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less thinking about other people and others' interests as much as you think about your own. That is humility. That's humility. What humility looks like is driving, the, driving the, 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 the old car so your wife can have the nicer one. That's humility. That's service. But practically speaking, and so, and so look at you. I want you to see the shift here in verse 8. It's, ju- it's juxtaposed here. Look at verse 8. In the same region shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over the flock. Here's the deal about shepherds. Is we kind of have a lofty view of them from the Bible, like shepherds, yeah, it's awesome. And, and like, you know, we're out in the field and the angels came to them, whatever. No, shepherd, being a shepherd was a dirty job. Like it was a dirty job and like it was like a low job. Like you didn't, like people didn't grow up dreaming of being a shepherd. 
Like, that's what you did if you got fired from your other job and you're just trying to figure something out for the time being and, like, whatever. And, or if, like, man, this is just my lot in life. I'm just going to go be a shepherd. And, like, that's just, like, who that was. Like, like, you didn't dream of being that. But then these people were out in the field. It's dark. And they're, they're keeping their flocks at nine. They're working in, like, the night shift. And it's, you know, it's not glamorous at all. And then all of a sudden, verse 9, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Remember, we talked a couple weeks ago about the angel thing as being scary, like for people. Like, like for us, we imagine angels are babies, or it's like kind of pleasant. They're like, hello, yeah, you got their wings and all that kind of stuff. Like, no, no, for these guys, like imagine like you're in the field, it's dark, all of a sudden a super bright rock, Dwayne the Rock Johnson flies down from heaven with six wings and a tomahawk. He's like, what's up? Like, that is what this looks like. That is the angel here. And all of a sudden, he's like, hey, what's up? And they're like, wow! And then all of a sudden, the glory of the Lord shines from heaven, light everywhere, shining down on them. You can imagine, just you, you're in the middle of a dark room at night, and someone turns on the light, and you're like, what are you doing? Imagine the glory of the Lord shines on you, okay? That's where these people are at. They're terrified, rightly so, because this angelic army being, this, this guy who's like, you know, an army ranger is here in front of them, and, and they're terrified. And the angel says this, verse 10, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. He's like, I'm not here to murder you. I'm here to tell you something good. I've got, I've got good news of great joy that God is bringing to you, and he's telling you first. Isn't that crazy? The people in the job that no one wanted, who were working the night shift, they were considered dirty. People didn't want a lot to do with them. The God of the universe sends an angel to these people first to tell them about what he's doing in the world through his son being born. This is a small example of God is exalting the humble. God's exalting the humble. People who are in humble means God is going to lift them up here. And so what he's saying is this. Uh, today, in verse 11, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who's the Messiah the Lord. What he just said is that the king, the coming one, the anointed one, the Messiah was a term for the king or the anointed one. He was going to come from God, and it was, it was connected to the king. He says, he is here, but he doesn't just leave it at that. He says, the Lord, the king who is the Lord is here. In the Old Testament, Lord was connected to God. So he's the king, but he's also God, and he is here now. And I'm proclaiming this good news to you, which is going to be good news for great joy, which is for all people. And he says, and this will be a sign for you. This is how you know what I'm saying is true. Even though it's an angel from heaven in front of them, like you probably are going to believe him. But he says, listen, here's how you can believe me. This will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. A manger, again, is a feeding trough. Why is that significant? Why would this sign be significant? Because that's not common. You don't lay your babies in feeding troughs. 
And so he says, once you see it, you'll know, hey, the guys were right. The angel was right. It's not something you would see every day. And so all of a sudden, verse 13, there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel praising God. So this angel's here, and all of a sudden, this, this choir comes down out of heaven, and they start singing. They're like, glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to people he favors. So it's quite a scene happening here. And after a while, the, the choir goes back up, and the angel goes back up. In verse 15, these dudes are standing here. And so when the angels left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds turned to one another, and they're like, what do we, okay, they're like, let's go, let's go check this out. Like, let's go to Bethlehem and see what happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they hurried off, and they found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And after seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But catch this, Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. As a side note, why you should believe the Bible, why you should believe the Gospels. How did Luke know that Mary treasured these things up in her heart? She told him. She told him. That's how he knows. When he was writing these things, he was investigating it. He went to Mary, who was still alive, and said, hey, what'd you think about that? And she was like, it was awesome. And she's like, I've treasured it in my heart. I don't, know how, I don't know how a mom would say that, whatever. It's like, it was very special to me. And, uh, and in verse 20, and then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had just seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. And so you see in this, in contrast to the humility of Jesus' birth, and his circumstances, and his family's economic status, and whatever else you want to throw in there, kind of counter to that is you see all of heaven rejoicing that this baby has been born. And so you can see God in the, in the grandest picture, grandest way. He is saying, I am going to exalt the humble. My son is the humble one, and I will exalt him, and so be like him. That's what he's saying. And this is like, this is the ultimate God, like God's desire, the humble king exalted by heaven. Humility has always been God's goal for people. Like in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, we just say, the meek or the humble will inherit the earth. That's his, like God's goal for us is to be people who admit that we need Jesus and then also to be people who look to others and their needs before we look to our own. That is God's goal. And we see here that he did it. He did it himself to save us. He did it himself. And so, you know, the sign of a bad leader is someone who calls you to do things that they won't do themselves. Like we all have had bosses or people like that who said, go do this. And you're like, you would never do that in a million years. But I'm, I'm just in this role, so I guess i got to do it. But then if you've had someone who's the opposite, who said, let's go do this, or someone who has had that role in the past, and you know, and you know this person's calling me to do this, but he's done it himself. That person's a lot easier to follow, isn't it? 
It's a lot easier to follow. And we, when we see Jesus, we say, when, he's, when he calls me to humble myself, when he calls me to give up myself, to give up my preference, to give up my life for sake, the sake of him, for the sake of others, we can look at him and say, I can do that. I can follow this leader because he did it before me to a degree that I never could attain. And so look at, I want, I want, we're going to end here. I want you to see Philippians chapter 2. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we won't come back to Luke on this, just if you are worried about your finger. Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing, and he's talking about humility. He says this, If then there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, If any affection and mercy, then make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Catch this, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Here's the call. Here's Paul's call based off of Jesus and his life lived for us. Humble yourself before God and before others. That's the call. But we know that we can't do this perfectly. Like, we know that we can't be Jesus. We can't live perfectly humble lives. We can't follow his example perfectly. And that is the reason he came and humbled himself for us. That's the whole point of it. And so now when we look to him, we see a God who humbled himself to the point of being a child born in that circumstance, who lived his life perfectly in perfect obedience to the Father and died on the cross the death that you and I deserved. And so now we see a God who completely emptied himself for us. And so when I give my life to follow him, I've given the spirit to work within me. And so now I can strive to do the same out of love for him and my desire to be like him. So I can humble myself. I can give up, like I said, like, like I can give up having the nice car in my family. Or I can give up watching the Aggies playing the bowl game because we have something else family related going on at Christmas time. I can give up these certain things and like give up my preferences for the sake of my wife, for the sake of my family, or the sake of my children, or the sake of this person at church who needs my help. I can give up my preferences for their good and for their sake because Jesus did it for me to a degree that I could never attain. And in the same way, I want you to, we're going to read this, in the same way that God exalted Jesus, so too will he do the same for you. So too will he do the same for the humble. Look at this. Look at verse 5. Adopt this same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And look at this, verse 9. Here's the, here's the switch. 
For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The humble king is exalted by heaven, and now he calls us to go and do likewise as people who follow him and who love him. And so he says, die to yourself. Walk in humility and be like me. Follow me in obedience. And become more like me over the course of your life. You're not going to be perfect. But he says, take a step. Take a step to be hum- humble like me. And in the end, just as God, heaven exalted Jesus, so too will heaven do the same for all believers in which you resurrect and you are exalted to the throne just like Jesus. And that is your end. And so if you don't know Jesus, the band comes up, if you don't know Jesus, you can. If you've never had this call, if you've never had this experience of like, you know what, there's something in me that always craves myself, always craves what I want, always like puts, like I'm, I'm always going to be the one who's first. I'm always going to have my preference taken. And you've never had a call in your life to say, no, give up yourself or die to yourself. And there's something in that that's compelling. Jesus is calling you. And he says, listen, I want you to follow me, and I want to lead you to be like me. And here's how you do that. You humble yourself, and you admit that you need him, and you call out to him, and you say, Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner, but I need you. And then you have your life back that up. You say, I admit that I need you, and I want to follow you with my life. I want to devote my life to being like you and becoming more and more like you. That's the call on our lives. It's the call to die. And for those of us who have already made that commitment, we've already, like, we're there. We're like, yes, we want to follow Jesus. Here's the call. This week, die to yourself. Humble yourself. Have you admitted you needed Jesus recently? And have you lived to make someone else's preference what you do? Have you done that? And if you look at the past week... Have you given up what you wanted in order to do something someone else wanted? Have you done that? And that's the call. Be like him. Follow him in humility. Let's pray. Father, come before you. And we thank you for sending Jesus for us, both to, to come and to take this, the, the role of a humble servant, to be someone who comes to live and die for us in our place and then lead us what it, to show us what it looks like to follow you. And so I pray that you would lead us to be people who have humble hearts, people who would serve you wholeheartedly and out of love for you, give up our preferences, give up our lives for the sake of others, and for the sake of leading them to follow you and to love you the way that we do. So help us this week, God. The work of the Spirit in our hearts lead us this week to humble ourselves and to think of others more than we think of ourselves and how we can serve. And so we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Christmas and what it means that he came for us because we can't do this perfectly. And you know that. And you came for us because of it. And so we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.